Welcome to The Laws of Style, featuring conversations on creativity, fashion, and the law from the leading edge of our economy and culture, hosted by noted fashion lawyer, Douglas Hand. Hello, and welcome to the podcast, The Laws of Style, downloading to you from the offices of HBA, high above Bryant Park in the Garment District of New York City. I'm your host, Douglas Hand, fashion lawyer and fashion law professor, and I'm joined by a special guest today. Uh, my co-professor at Cardoza Law School, soon to be co-author of the definitive work on fashion law uh, as a casebook and uh, business school text, Barbara Colson. Barbara, welcome. Thank you. So, Barb, we've been looking forward to this, or at least I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Um, but I want to start at a place that a lot of people may not know about you. Um, y- you are a titan in the industry. You really, I mean, as a fashion lawyer and fashion law professor, you you created, honestly, both subjects in the minds of many, including this interviewer. But um, before that, you were a professional actress and singer. Tell us about those days. Tell us about that pivot whenever it was into the law and how, if at all, that informs what you do now. Sure. Well, that was my first love. And it's probably one of the reasons why I appreciate creative people. I went to Sarah Lawrence College. I studied with Eva Legallion and Uta Hagen. I worked for eight years um, solidly as an actor and singer. Um, And when I was in my late 20s, I started to see some of my friends make that next big move from stage to screen. Um, or television and it wasn't happening fast enough for me and I was impatient and bored and ready to not be so reliant on one show to another right. and I decided to do something else that something else I got to tell you it was doctor lawyer Indian chief and um, <laughs> I went I applied to law school which was four thousand dollars a year at the time cheaper than medical school cheaper um, than preschool yeah, exact cheaper <laughs> than preschool <laughs> and that's how I ended up in law school um, I loved my career in the theater my I still hang out with some of my dear friends I've you've seen a program I did at Cardozo this year with my friend Lindsay Krauss mm-hmm. about the Rosenbergs um, I my friend Mark Bramble who wrote 42nd Street recently died and I'm one of the executors of his estate I'm I go to everything in the theater it's 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 kind of like being a musician and changing paths and Cardozo is filled with with alum like that Lee yeah. Warren um, who was the general counsel of, of Michael Kors um, and um, was a Lee was a was a concert pianist. Went yeah. to the Oberlin Conservatory, and there he's just one of many dancers, singers. The first two graduates of Cardozo, top of the class, were former New York City ballet dancers. So wow. we we creative people, God knows why, but we seem to drift toward law. Your favorite role was what? Well, you're gonna laugh, Mazeppa in Gypsy, the stripper who plays the trumpet. <laughs> Why? Because it, <laughs> cha, cha, cha. it got a All lot right. of laughs, and you were on stage for you know two brief scenes, and they were they were absolute scene killers. And then I yeah. got to go back to the dressing room and read and and crochet and do the stuff that I wanted to do. So I would say for sure that role. Well, so let's let's flash to the next chapter of your storied career, eighties, nineties, 
fashion industry? I guess, um, you know, for listeners that don't know, um, you know, Barb really started the legal departments of three major brands, Kate Spade, Seven for All Mankind, and Stuart Weitzman. Um, Meaning before you got there, there were no lawyers in the house. Um, but, But 80s, 90s, New York City fashion, the big four, and by the big four, I mean Calvin, Donna, Tommy, Tommy Ralph. and of course Ralph, all coming online, kind of planting a flag for American fashion. What was that like? Were those salad days or was it hell? Well, I started my career thinking I was going to be a criminal lawyer, which is a perfect um, um, sort of segue from being a, th- a theater person. And just by the accident of fate, um, I needed more money, and I went to a couple of law firms, one big, two small, and ended up at Amster Rothstein representing Ralph Lauren. Um, the firm was a patent firm, but had mm-hmm. some big fashion clients, Ralph being the big one. And I was brought in to do um, enforcement work um, and a counterfeiting work. On patents or on, soft IP? No, soft IP, okay. because it was a, such a patent-centric firm, but also had a strong trademark practice. And so for the non-lawyers listening or the non-IP lawyers, soft IP copyright trademark trademark. exactly so I did um, I was very quickly assigned um, a lot of the Ralph Lauren litigation Mm -hmm. um, as an associate um, and it became I guess kind of my bread and butter in the six years that I was there I really learned about the client um, learned about the business and took a lot of depositions um, took settled a lot of cases those were the days of civil seizures I mean, it was kind of the beginning of the kind of lawlessness of of counterfeiting mm-hmm. and working, learning to work with the police, with law enforcement, with the FBI, which was a lot of fun. And I think interesting for law enforcement, you know, it was a kind of nice break from right. from their usual cases. But also many of the counterfeiters were um, bad guys in other arenas. I can just think of Squad Car 12 saying, we're the fashion police. Exactly. <laughs> Parked outside of uh, you Chinatown. Know, some, some, some corner of Chinatown. Yeah, and it was a great collegial group of, of people. I got very involved at the time with the International um, IACC, um, mm-hmm. International Anti-Counterfeiting Coalition. I was on the board. I was chairman of the board. Um, and, and those were the days also of eBay, the beginning of online counterfeiting and um, auction sites like eBay, the Tiffany versus eBay lawsuit yeah. um, came a little bit later. Well, I want to get the chronology, but let's let's put a pin in and just maybe unpack for listeners counterfeiting versus copying. You know, what's what's the scale in terms of an item which is knocked off, and and what are the what are the appropriate phrases for that? Sure. Well, knock off the knockoff is really kind of a, a, a misnomer at times i mean count, there's there's true counterfeit which right. is what you see in chinatown you know this is a product same bag, label same label same trademark same trademark 
convincing consumers, mm-hmm. um, trying to convince consumers that this is the this real thing. This is a Gucci thing. bag. It's just $35. Exactly, because we can make it cheaper <laughs> because we know the factory right. that dumped it out the back door, you know, et cetera, et cetera. On the other hand, as we well know, many consumers know perfectly well that it's a fake, that it's a counterfeit. Mm-hmm. Um, so substantially identical. Um, that is, you know, simple way for for, for non-lawyers for counterfeit right. knockoff is a whole different concept um and infringement also i mean yeah. obviously the fashion business as you've talked about is a business of inspiration you know most designers are inspired if you read women's wear daily around market time you see pages and pages of a designer's inspiration and right. it comes mood from boards. exactly it comes from from other eras um, and um, that's okay. Um, then there's the crossover. It's necessary, right? Absolutely. You know, you can't have a mood board full of naked people. Exactly. Or I guess, you know, you could. But. Yes, but <laughs> it's, but, so inspiration is okay. And then we get into infringement um, or, and, and knockoff is, again, I, I really don't like the word knockoff because it, it could mean infringement and a lot of people use it to mean counterfeiting and it's kind of neither. So I would say the, the two concepts that your listeners should keep in mind are, you know, true counterfeits, mm-hmm. you know, this is a Prada bag, it's not a Prada bag, um, versus um, it, um, infringement, which right. is um, one designer saying, you copied me. Um, right. and, and one very actionable. Yes. On absolutely. a trademark basis, yep. you know, certainly, and, and, and perhaps on other IP bases. The other, much more difficult. Exactly. A, a, a wide amount of gray area. Yes. Yeah. Um, okay, so back to you. Yes. And back to 80s, 90s, and leaving private practice and going in-house. How did that happen? Was it, were you sort of the captive associate working for uh, Kate Spade was was your first in-house position. Actually, correct? my yes, my, actually no. My first in-house position was Calvin Klein Jeans. Okay, and um, which was the licensee for right. Calvin Klein. But they had an in-house legal department. They at that had point in one time. lawyer who okay. was a um, corporate <laughs> massive, lawyer. Massive in-house team. John jo- John Jones, twenty-nine years old, and and the company went from a sixty million dollar to a $600 million company company in about a year because Calvin Klein jeans were the, that was the beginning of, And they had a know, 29 year old GC. Exactly. Wow. And he hired me, be, I, I was at it. He came to an IECC meeting when they realized, when Calvin Klein jeans realized, it was called design, the, the holding company, Designer Holdings, which was a public company. Mm-hmm. And again, it was the licensee of Calvin Klein for jeans wear. Um, and John came to a IECC meeting um, because um, he, I, I believe his board, his management said, oh my gosh, we have a huge counterfeiting problem. And I was, I had, I was the chairman of that meeting. The, and I spoke on a panel with Lee Sporn um, about third party liability. And it was mm-hmm. the beginning of, you know, suing, suing the deep pocket, suing the landlord, suing flea market owners, et cetera. And we started chatting and, I heard, overheard him say, I really need an in-house lawyer to handle enforcement. And I called him the next day and said, I'd love that job. I had been in law firms for, oh gosh, six, 12 years. So I was not okay. a neophyte. I yeah. mean, I'd been at a big firm for three years, 
six years at Amster doing, you know, trade serious trademark work was one of the good trade IP firms, um, and so it was. It just felt like time. Like time. Mm-hmm. Um, it was also, you know, women in partnership was very complicated in those days, um, particularly in the old world of a patent firm, which was pretty male heavy so it was a great opportunity and john like all of my jobs john jones said okay uh come on by tomorrow and meet arnie simon the ceo and guess i got the job and i started i guess two weeks later and dove right into a lawsuit involving costco and calvin klein jeans which which doug and (laughs) i which i I think makes our makes its way into our case book exactly and furthermore which we both teach because it's there's a very good harvard law harvard business school study of the warnico calvin klein lawsuit which is probably one of the key learning tools for any lawyer who wants to know about the pitfalls of licensing so anyway that was my first project was dealing with costco and I, I was there for a year, and then guess what? We were acquired by Warnico, um, and which owned, which was the licensee and beneficial trademark owner um, of Calvin Klein for underwear. Um, and so they were just massive, consolidating. massive business exactly. at the time, and, and still is. Exactly. So they acquired us a year after I started there, and. I lost my job after they kept me on. Actually, I was pretty much the last man, last woman standing, because because of the Warnico, Calvin Klein law ultimately lawsuit. Um, I had a lot of information, um, which was useful, and yeah. I actually moved over to Warnico for several months. Okay. And um, and then to Kate Spade to build out their legal department. Right or... before that, I was at West Point Stevens. Okay. Um, because I had met Lise Porn who was assistant general counsel at Ralph Lauren when I was doing all the Ralph Lauren work. And after right. I left Warnico, I called Lee and said, I need a job. And he said, West Point Stevens, which was the license, Ralph Lauren licensee for home, home products yeah. and everybody else's licensee for that matter. Um, and he said, the assistant general counsel is leaving, really doesn't want to do a big search, go meet him. And I met him and I got the job. And it was a great Great three years learning, really learning about the soon to depart textile industry, mm-hmm. licensing, because we were everybody's licensee, um, and, um, and also about sourcing, because the business was moving from U.S., total U.S. based, you know, West Point Stevens was in Alabama, Georgia, Maine, um, all over the South, South Carolina, North Carolina, to China. Yeah. to Turkey, to Brazil, to all the places where our sheets and towels and home products are now made. Right. And I was there for three years, and I was in the showroom one day, and a very attractive group of people were poking around, and I said to someone, who, were the, who was that group? And they said, oh, it's Kate, the Kate Spade people. They're here. Um, they want to talk to us about maybe becoming their home licensee. Um, and that's how I met the Kate Spade people. I met Robin Marino, who was the CEO. I made a kind of snarky remark about, you guys have a big counterfeiting problem um, in Chinatown. <laughs> and I said, I'd love to give you some free advice. I said, I, I worked at Calvin Klein. I said, I'd love to help you out. So I, she, she, gave, she grabbed my card. She gave me her card. She called me the next day. I went over, I went over to, to the office, met Kate and Andy Spade. Get, laid out a whole 
enforcement program on a napkin for them and they called me you know within days and said would you like to come work for us so that's how I got my first general counsel job um, and what what was it like building out the infrastructure for because at that point in time they were probably doing in excess of 10 million at least 70, they were almost a 70 somewhere be, they were 70 million dollar business when i left okay three years later so they were a small business yeah it was a really wonderful place to i never felt like i was imposing you know some kind of order or anything i mean they were they were a family i mean mm -hmm. it was the truly one of the happiest three years of my life they were you know the sure our, our, your listeners know it was started by Kate and Andy Spade and their two best friends mm -hmm. Elise Ahrens who's still involved with the Kate Spade brand it's Kate Spade name um, and and Pamela um, and um, Robin Marino was the CEO they were building out the company at the time was owned had a I can't I can't remember if it was 50 percent thereabouts by Neiman Marcus which okay. also owned Laura Mercier mm -hmm. so I had a great resource at Neiman Marcus in in their legal department right. they had a wonderful general counsel um, and a small team that was very helpful but um, you know the first line of attack was counterfeiting because it was right there in Chinatown yeah. um, and I did something um, which was just common sense which is call all the other handbag companies most of whom I knew from IECC and in right. and, and Ralph Lauren and Calvin Klein days um, and said, why don't we get together? And, you know, and this was the beginning of teamwork. Yeah. Um, the counterfeiting was, it was really wasn't about doing it just for your brand, but work, the, the more coordinated uh, action. Exactly. The more yeah. coordination, the light, more likely you were to get law enforcement involved. Um, so I met with that whole gang, um, joined the IACC. I think I was chairman of the board. I can't remember if, if I was chairman of the board during the Kate Spade years or when, but um, it was, it was, that was the first order of business. Mm -hmm. And then we took, um, we also had um, uh, outside counsel handling our trademarks mm -hmm. and we were such a small company and there had been a lot of applications globally. So I was charged with kind of, I guess, honing that in, um, managing it and, um, took that over, and then slowly other things kind of the day-to-day -day day reality exactly. of a. Did they have brick and their own brick and mortar? We at have that one point store in time? on okay. uh, in Soho, which is I believe still there. Mm -hmm. it was in one a, a freestanding store in Soho. There was some foreign distribution already. Okay. Um, there were accounts in Asia, in Japan, I believe, a little bit of in Europe. Um, mm -hmm. Um, so there was that. Then there was licensing. I mean, yeah. I spent a lot of time on licensing because Kate really built that business was really built initially on licensing. Yeah. Um, and there was an eyewear license already. There was a shoe, um, a shoe license with with um, Schwartz and Benjamin. Um, there was Kate loved paper, so there was a Cranes license. Yeah, Lots that. of really adorable. Mm -hmm. um, um, totally it was a really lovely licensing program and very organic mm -hmm. just like this is what i'm this is what we're interested in particularly kate and so authentic yeah and that's you know. why i think it was such a 
delicious brand yeah. at the time. Indeed. I mean, licensing a big part of Kate Spade and a lot of brands at that point in time. Um, and a model which is still with us today. Can you describe it a bit just in terms of both the business and legal realities of what licensing is? Well, I think for a small brand like Kate Spade, um, it was a great way to branch into areas that you don't have expertise in. I mean, I think perfume is the perfect um, fragrance. I mean, how many fashion brands can manufacture fragrance? So what do you do? You enter into a license with an Estee Lauder or a L'Oreal or one of the big brands, which then can make the, you know, manufacture the, the... perfume and the beauty products which have health and safety issues right. um, have the expertise to do that the packaging um, the packaging the manufacturing the, the the and then the distribution yes right because yeah, we all know you know it's different it's ground floor typically or today it's it's specific retailers that deal with it Sephora being you know kind of one of the main exactly ones. and you can and eyewear another one I mean I always right. say to my ask my students where do you buy your glasses and they say oh at my optometrist or or at you know one of the eyewear stores or at the airport i mean it's that is a whole other and again health and safety issues because eyewear has to be um uv you know um uv protectable um um shatterproof all sorts of issues like that and then other area other things when i think of kate you know the the cranes cranes paper Mm -hmm. um paper collection now at now as grand as brands grow bigger like ralph lauren they start to buy back their licenses and why do they do that because you make more money that way it's as simple as that i always say to my students if the, the answer to my question is always going to be a dollar sign almost 90 percent of the, the time <laughs> right. because it's you know it's an investment um and as a brand grows big i mean you when you when you enter into a license agreement the licensee um, will will manufacture the goods, distribute the goods, sell right. the goods, and pay no money you, out of pocket. Exactly, other than and paying pay a you, lawyer to negotiate that exactly, license. and pay you five percent or seven percent or ten percent, mm-hmm. and the rest is theirs. And when you take back those licenses and start to manufacture the product yourself, then you get you know that five or seven or ten exactly. cents of the dollar. Exactly. The, but the you also minus the margin exactly and the risk yes absolutely and that's I was yeah. just going to say and then but then you take back the risk um, so yeah. it's it's and you can't make it go away so easily usually license agreements you know if they're if they're sh- if it's a new licensee you want to as the licensor as the brand you want to make it a short term right. um, to test it out to see what the relationship is like I mean licenses. Uh, can be very risky, and I love teaching our licensing cases. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the Kate, the um, the um, Martha, Martha Stewart, Stewart. Um, is a great one. A great case, the which involved Macy's, um, and also the the Warnico Calvin Klein case is a great example of what can go wrong. I mean, the lawlessness a, during that time. Yes, really, um, yes. In, in the licensing community. So Kate Spade, and then. Seven for All Mankind? Correct. I left Kate Spade because, and I hated leaving Kate Spade, but I got a great offer from Seven for All Mankind with a big paycheck boost, Mm -hmm. and I needed the money to pay for college. So um, I went to Seven for All Mankind, which was based in L.A., but I kind of commuted back and forth. Um, It was the hot luxury denim company at the time. Um, Peter Carell was the CEO. Um, It was... um, gorgeous marketing, PR, 
um, beautiful product and interestingly enough made in the USA mm-hmm. um, unlike um, the brands that I'd been working right. with um, well so you'd done Calvin you'd done you'd done some home and tabletop and then right. you'd done Kate Spade which was probably at that juncture mainly accessories outside exactly. of the licenses exactly so so a move into denim as as one of the very west coast based but right. but but definitely american you know united states based manufacturing so what what were some of the challenges with that um bicoastal existence mm-hmm. as well as again building out a legal department and a recognition of the importance of of the law sure well i got that job through private equity um the one of my friends from calvin klein jeans days um what was working for them as um head of licensing and um she called me and said they're look they really need a lawyer private equity is the legal bills have been very high with outside counsel and um they just they need some order and i interviewed and i got the job and um i um it was a great company to work for um and it was a great board um it was the, the at the time it was Bear Stearns Merchant Banking, which became Irving Place Capital. Okay, so John, John Howard, Howard, who yeah. I absolutely loved, and used to call me the designated adult, um, <laughs> and um, which was a comp- great compliment. But you know, I came in and really brought, I would say, order. I mean, it was a great company. The product was magnificent, but it just needed. They were, you know, when private equity owns a company, it's about ultimately. Um, flipping it and so you want to be able to answer all those questions that in the next level of investor is going to ask you know what's tell me about your trademark portfolio um who you know employment issues Mm -hmm. i mean the company was based in southern california and most of the language spoke in the factory which was right there Mm -hmm. was spanish and are these people documented you know Mm -hmm. um questions related to real estate um we had we had a couple of freestanding stores um and we're building you know a little bit of that Mm -hmm. um um just you know everything that that makes a company tick um well so from there to Stuart Weitzman right and now you're you're in shoes right um Again, with brick-and-mortar retail, yes. right? Again, I think with some licensing. Yes. Um, and um, I think that's probably an appropriate, because we could we could do a part one completely on your career and right. a part two on fashion law. So I think that's an appropriate part to go to part two. Sure. Because you and I both face that question, um, because we are recognized as fashion lawyers. Well, what is, what is fashion law? And we've skirted around it talking about sure. your experiences, but... When you are in an academic setting and you're sitting opposite someone who self-identifies as a real estate lawyer or an IP lawyer or a litigator, how do you describe what fashion law is? Well, it's the business of it's business law, really. It's it's um, and you're teaching a wonderful MBA, JD course at NYU, which I which, which I you started started, <laughs> um, and it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Um, it's a business, and it's a big business. It's bigger than music. It's bigger than you know, sports is bigger than entertainment and movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, um, so when you think about the business of fashion, we're talking about obviously IP, you're talking about 
which you know you're one of the experts eponymous brands when a when a when a designer names the company after herself um who owns that that who owns that trademark we're talking about employment oh my gosh i spent so much time in my career on employment law certainly during that raft of both interim class actions yes. and then wage an hour and they still come up for brands Absolutely. but and dress code yeah. you know we're one of the few businesses where which um we're, we're one of we're one of the businesses that can tell people we'd like you to dress this way and i always say to my students when you go into a prada store versus going into a um walmart you're mm-hmm. You're going to see employees dressed in different ways, um, headscarves, the Abercrombie case, real estate, um, um, privacy. Oh, my gosh. I mean, we, Doug, you and I have been working on the table of contents for our book, and we— it's, We've it's gotten a, whole, a little farther than that. Yes, but it's—yes, it's, <laughs> yes, we have. it, But it's a whole new world. I mean, private, yeah, who, knew, who knew 20 years ago that privacy was going to be such a big issue, consumer information about customers— um, so, um, international, it's an international business. So import, export, getting goods in and out of the country, yeah. trade war. Oh my gosh. You know, I say to my students, you better be watching the news on this trade war with China because yeah. it really, really affects our business. And, and brands become international really pretty much right out of the gates. Oh, right? absolutely. I yeah. mean, Kate Spade was already international when I got there as was seven, uh, yeah. seven for all mankind. It's, it's, it's an international world. The, the e-commerce, you yeah. know, buy, taxes, buying and selling, um, shipping, distribution, um, risk. I mean, it's, there's, not a, there's nothing that is not involved in fashion law. And yeah. it, it, it's when we were doing our table of contents for our next book, <laughs> we, we, I think we, we said, oh, we're going to do 10 chapters. And suddenly, we were you know, at 17. We were at 17. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So it's a very complicated... Um, um, but again, business-oriented course. And I think it's really, really important yeah. um, because anybody who wants to represent a fashion designer, I mean, if you've represented pharmaceutical companies, you know, there's certainly some crossovers, um, but there, it's a very specific industry. Yeah. Influencers, advertising, the fact that, that now, you know, the old world of Vogue and L and, um, you know, Large publishers are yes. struggling, yes. obviously, and um, you know the, these platforms for social media following yes. have become incredibly pervasive yes. and uh, are a great way for a brand to get a story that they feel is authentic out there. Yes. Well, so let us shamelessly plug the book, sure. even more so than we have, uh, because why wouldn't we? Um, how will this book be different? Different than that, there are a few books out there right. that are taught in uh, you know fashion law courses, um, which mainly are you know New York law schools and some LA law schools, right. and I know uh, UPenn right. uh, and several others. But how will this book distinguish itself? Well, it's a it's a book for law students and business students. It will be a case book because mm-hmm. our publisher is a, is a law, Carolina law, Press. Carolina Press, um, but it will also be a a practice book mm-hmm. because you and I are both professors of practice. I mean, yeah. we're both, um, we've both been in the business. Um, we, um, have, we know, we know we're not pure academics. Um, in fact, we're teaching because the ABA, this is about as academic as I get yes. with the bow tie. Um, <laughs> and we both like to bring a lot of practical reality yes. into the classroom along with the, 
you know, the theory. Yes, exactly. Because I think that those blend well together. Yes, yeah. and that's why we, that's why we're teaching, and that's why we're both we've both been sought after as teachers because we know the business, and our students constantly comment that that um, we, you know, we bring practice to the table. We teach a course, by the way, just to shamelessly plug our FIT course. We teach it course at Cardozo called the Fashion Law Practicum where our students who have taken fashion law from um, from you first, from me for a <laughs> semester um, advise FIT master's level students all professionals mm -hmm. in their capstone projects which are basically building entrepreneurial businesses yeah. and they all routinely comment that they're they've learned they learn so much it's an excellent course i mean i didn't yeah. have anything like that when i was going through nyu both as a law student and, and a business school student because um you know that that uh, the proximity of fit is is a tremendous one and the yeah. ability for our students to have a virtual client that is yeah. pretty close to real yes right i mean some of these fit students put those business ideas directly into Absolutely. practice and um you know so that's that's a great that's yes. a great course so about cardoza um y you started fame yes Lee describe Ford. fame a bit you and sure. you and lee yeah we started fame um and the acronym stands for fashion arts media entertainment mm -hmm. and we basically started we, we 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 took all of the courses that cardoza has always taught in counseling creative types mm -hmm. um, and put them under the fame umbrella. We always had a music law course. We always had media and entertainment um, law courses. Um, I had been teaching fashion law there for at least seven, eight years. Um, and sports, which also falls under fame. We've mm -hmm. always had a very strong sports law department. And we said, you know what? This isn't, fashion is not about fashion anymore. I mean, it's, right. as we well know, most fashion companies are involved in entertainment are involved in in um you know the academy awards the, it's the story Tony's. creation exactly. right i mean to induce a customer a consumer to buy a garment which let's face it most of them are based on garments that were made before yep they they you know inherently have a function but it's that story creation behind it yes. which that and quality, for yeah. sure. But um, there's a lot of quality product out there. What differentiates and what creates a higher price point Correct. is is latching into the minds of the consumer and, and that story resonating and making them feel yeah. that way when they don the clothes. I mean, we think about the Met Ball last week, you yeah. know, and the entertainers at the Met Ball and the designers. I mean, how many designers have been launched by creating beautiful garments for entertainers well and, and rihanna yeah this week announcing that she and lvmh are starting a brand together yeah in partnership from ground zero yeah uh pharrell and, williams right. swiss beats alicia keys husband is i i'm i'm eager to get him to come speak at cardoza That'd because be he's one. he's an art collector he's a 
sneaker designer. He's a Harvard Business School graduate. He's, I mean, he's he's a you know Renaissance Renaissance man. Yeah. And that's but that's the crossover back to fame. That's what what, what makes fame interesting. Mm-hmm. And it's not ju- so it's not just our courses, but it's also our CLE pro. We have wonderful programs. I mean, this year we had Kenneth Cole. We had last year we had Isaac Mizrahi. We had Clive Davis. We've had. Um, I mean, we've just had so many interesting Sheila Evans, producer of documentaries at HBO. It's it's a great program, and I'm re- really, really proud of it, and I'm proud that you're part of it. Yes, yes, I, too, participate on the Fame Board, and uh, I find it both rewarding, but as well, uh, you know, from because I also teach at NYU, I think it, it distinguishes Cardoza as, as having that focus. Um, so back to dressing and mm-hmm. and how brands create these stories um, and how lawyers protect these stories. Uh, as far as personal presentation, you and I both are law professors but practitioners. So how do you choose to get yourself ready, whether it's for teaching or appearing on a podcast mm-hmm. or showing up for work? And what do your apparel choices say about you? And, and we'll dovetail that into you can also talk about what you're in today by letting us know who you're wearing and, sure. and you know, what, uh, what season it is, if you know. Um, Thank you. Well, I love... <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> I love new young designers, and I have many of them in my life. Mm-hmm. So I have to tell you that I wear and buy mostly everything from one or other of my young designer friends. I'm wear- Today I'm wearing a jacket designed by Margarita Serrano, mm-hmm. who was a lawyer who was my intern several summers ago when I was at Stuart Weitzman, and she had a passion for design, and I said, go for it, girl. Mm-hmm. You know, life is short. Having, having left the theater to go into law, started my life with a creative piece, um, and never regretting that, I said to her, go go for it. And she did. And she is a perfect example of the way a new designer works these days. She doesn't work with retail. She's everything is her website. Mm-hmm. Um, she has uh, she has an office. When she's in New York, she has some space down on Spring. Okay. You probably know that place. Yeah. It's where a lot of designers kind of, it's kind of like we work for designers. Right. Um, she, she, you know, manages her own models, and and she has a very good friend who's a model, um, who she met through one of my other students. I mean, they're a very small world. So yeah. Margarita Serrano, almost all my jackets are hers. I'm it's wearing theory nice pa- theory pants today because I love the brand and they make the best pants. Um, and I'm wearing, of course, Stuart Weitzman shoes. I never have to buy another pair of shoes in my life because. Seven, six, years gotcha. at, six years at Stewart and three years at Kate Spade, I have shoes. Yeah. Um, so what, you know, what I buy, I almost, at this point in my life, almost everything I buy is from somebody I know. Yeah. Um, be it jewelry or um, um, accessories or a handbag. Um, it's, it's, it's just, I, I feel it's really, really important for me mm-hmm. to support young designers. Um, I'm wearing a Calvin Klein belt. Of um, course you are. <laughs> from the old days. You probably set on belts for the rest of your <laughs> exactly. life, Exactly. Well, for younger lawyers starting out or mid-levels, 
And here I want to speak specifically to, to women mm -hmm. uh, because as, I mean, you're an icon to many, but you entered an industry at a time, uh, the industry is still slanted well towards men um, and, and white men, let's yeah. face it, uh, in terms of positions, executive positions. Um, and the lawyer often works with the designer, but at higher levels, the lawyer works with the executives. Right. Um, what do you think is an appropriate way for a lawyer to dress? Uh, and, you know, I think it's a challenge in many workplaces, particularly what's traditionally been considered a white collar workplace, right. because women don't have a lot of tailored clothing options. So maybe speak to that, speak to how you dealt with it in the 80s and 90s mm -hmm. and how you would advise young lawyers to deal with it today. I think it's important to look at the place where you're working, the culture of the place that you're working. Um, law firms, it's still appropriate to dress the way other women dress in those at those law firms. Mm -hmm. um, I think the day of the suit is maybe behind us. Um, I, I actually always wore pants to work because mm -hmm. I always felt more comfortable with pants. And as you know, I ride a bicycle to work. Yeah. Um, but um, on the other hand, um, I, think, I think the fit is important. I find it, you know, I'm always amazed at women who wear things that are kind of too tight or too mm -hmm. low cut. I think having good foundation wear is important. Uh, and there are so many people to ask. I mean... You know, in the men's world, you have a wonderful book um, now, which is specifically addressed to men. In the there's 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 not a lot. I mean, I think the women women's wear in the workplace is changing so dramatically. I would I would recommend any woman who can't can't any woman who came to me and said. Who do I talk to about dressing for work? I would probably refer to my friend Sherry Jetter, who was at Ralph Lauren, <laughs> right. and at Donna Karen, and very other well places. put together puts, and, and he, very professional. She puts herself yeah. together beautifully. She wears a lot of stuff from the old days and knows how to how to put it together. There are wonderful stylists um, who don't charge a lot of money, but um, again, it depends on the place. Yeah. Um, One of the challenges, so when I wrote the Laws of Style um, last year, and, and the ABA is my publisher, uh, I, I was very reluctant to tackle women's wear. Uh, and I think it's, it's, it's a woman who needs to write, you know, the Laws of Style for women yeah. or, or pick her own title. Um, but my book addresses mainly what men face in an era of business casualization right. where they are now outside of the comfort zone, perhaps, yeah. of, of being able to wear a suit every day. Although yeah. they certainly can wear a suit every day, and that might be good practice for people who you know, are uncomfortable in anything else. To a degree, women have been saddled with that ever since yeah. – They've joined the workplace sure. and the workforce, and here I'm, I'm speaking specifically at law firms or in-house as lawyers because there hasn't really been a great uniform right. for women. I mean, well, let me tell you something interesting. I was in at Hudson Yards last week, and I went into Brooks Brothers, mm -hmm. which I've, I, I went into Brooks Brothers actually a few months ago looking for shirts, and I found two fabulous, you know, dress women's dress shirts kind of mannish type mm -hmm. which i loved and good price and and zach, as you know zach posen's been yeah. designing for brooks brothers and look if i were a first year associate at you know 
Sherman and Sterling, I, I think I would start at Brooks Brothers because the level of style mm-hmm. is has really been elevated. elevated. Yeah. I mean, dresses, adorable, not really suits, but jackets and skirts, yeah. um, wonderful pants. Um. Well, Brooks Brothers for men and women, yeah. I think, particularly for workwear uh, in a conservative setting. Yeah has been great and and infusing it with Zach's designs because Zach is a true talent and before that you know uh, Tom Brown had his Black Fleece collection there I think it's still there Um, so yeah that's absolutely a a, a great suggestion I think one of the further challenges that again in writing the book I wanted to steer far clear of is in the workplace women being sexualized yeah in ways that men are not. And so maybe I'll put that question to you not so much in, in you know, guidance for young lawyers, but what did you face in the 80s, 90s in the workplace as the general counsel, which is often considered the bucket of cold water, mm-hmm. the person that says no or stop mm-hmm. or you can't do that, um, to potentially a room full of men? I was always in a room full of men. Um, the room where it happened was the room f- filled with men. And, you know, I I was very cautious with my, um, I mean, I remember once some finance, young, very young finance guys came to West Point Stevens and at, came into my office, which was clearly, a, you know, an executive office and said, where's the coffee? And I said, it's in the kitchen. Go make it. You know, in and, your face. In, the, if, in your face, if you stand in my doorway any exactly. longer. Exactly. <laughs> and I, but I wasn't snarky. I just said, "In the kitchen. Go yeah. make it." You know, like yeah. I always kind of joked about it. Um, mm-hmm. um, I where I really drew the line is being asked, and this could happen to men and women. And look at what's going on in D.C. right now, to do anything illegal. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes creative people don't realize. You know, we really can't, you know, we really can't use, cut a CD of all those songs that we don't have rights to. Or we really can't use that picture of, you know, such and such a celebrity without paying for it. So it's a, little, a lot about education. Yeah. I was so busy as a start, aging startup lawyer. I don't mean me aging, but the company's aging yeah. startups that I, I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about the way I was treated. I just, I kind of went to work and did my work. Um, and I don't have any real horror stories um, except for salary issues, but, you know, just gen- gender disparity, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, finding out what other people made or finding out who got how much when the, when the company was sold. Right. But that's very true of my whole generation. And what I'm still surprised to hear from my, my students, because my, my Cardozo alum and NYU alum and Fordham alum come come to talk to me about Me Too issues that they're having in the workplace, and I'm quite shocked at how much is still going on despite all of the press. Mm-hmm. Um, um, both been big firms and small, but particularly in small firms where somehow they haven't gotten the memo yet right. that we just don't talk to women like this and we don't show those pictures on the screen and we don't you know, look somebody up and down in a lascivious way. I mean, they're they're still really struggling. They're mm-hmm. also struggling tremendously with pay disparity. I mean, I I, I got to tell you that, and and it's fashion companies are guilty of it as well as our law firms, um, paying lawyers, you know, sixty five seventy thousand dollars after they graduate from law school to work twelve hour lawyer days. Come yeah. on, 
I mean, I mean I'm not going to name names, but you know who you are. I mean, it's it's shocking, and I I am I'm happy to be the mentor um, in terms of helping them negotiate better salary, helping them dig in their heels and say, no, I can't work for that, um, and helping women say, that's inappropriate. I mean, the problem with startups is that there's not often an HR department. I mean, right. human resources, it's, you know, there's not any, any not just fashion companies, but small law firms. Yeah. I will. My first question will be, have you talked to HR about this? And the answer is, well, we don't have HR. Oh my God, you know? Yeah. But yeah. that's the way it was when I went to Kate Spade. We, we one of the, you know, it was it was a small company. There, we weren't there yet. Those are support mm-hmm. staff, yeah. and the last thing, the last group to get hired. You know, we're talking about design. We need designers. We need the tech pack people. We need the manufacturers. Yeah, yeah lawyers, HR. You know, we'll get to that when we get sued, which right. is often what happens. And on usually a, a employee or employment related matter. Exactly out of the gates. Is there any shift that you've seen? Over the last five years, ten years, in terms of C-suites, executives being at least growing numbers of women, uh, or on boards of directors, or do you feel that it's still locked up? It's still slow, way yeah. too slow. Yeah. I mean, it's you know, uh, very few direct boards have fifty percent women. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would the best advice I would have for for women is the more business experience you have that JD MBA mm-hmm. um, the more the more you know spreadsheet and and business plan and you know really knowing the guts of the finances yeah. of a business is very important on a board um, but it's a long it's 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 still a slog in my humble opinion mm-hmm. well pivoting a little bit we've talked about you know some of the advice that you might give um, in terms of brands for for young lawyers to wear. But just from your perspective, more on the business side, um, what are some brands that you think are interesting uh, or doing it right from either a design perspective or a customer engagement perspective? Well, I think people, young people, really care about sustainability. Um, and I Glad mean, you mentioned that, because yes, that was my next question, yes. so let's conflate them. I think them. that that is, <laughs> I mean, listening to the news, if we can get through the noise of, you know, mm-hmm. Trump and everything else, I mean, the big issue right now is, is there going to be a world for our children and our grandchildren? And, and we've seen, you know, this is, this is the time. Yeah. Um, and this is one of the world's dirtiest yes, businesses. We are very guilty. Um, of of dumping. There's a wonderful cartoon in the New Yorker a few weeks ago, based on the Murray Kondo book of getting you know getting rid of stuff, and it's like a big pile of apparel in the middle of the ocean, coming to a point. And yeah. and we've got to figure that out. Eileen Fisher, I think, is extraordinary. Yeah. Um, in terms of looking at that problem, you know, straight on, and has mm-hmm. been for a long time. We did a panel at Cardoza recently and had um, one of her folks speak, and she was very compelling so real sustainability I'm I'm not talking about just the words but really really doing something also I like you know I'm I'm, again I'm very interested in the younger designers like the Margarita Serranos who are who are doing it without um, without the help of the big 
big box department stores mm-hmm. um, do, doing it. You know, how is she, how is she going to grow? Of course, she's going to need, you know, she's going to need financing. She, somebody's going to buy her at some point, and then the business will change. I've been through this, and this is going to be the real issue to watch because businesses change. Yeah. You know, when Kate Spade was acquired first by Liz Claiborne, then you know, it's not the same brand. Let's face it. Yeah. You know, well, um, there's there's. And, and that's the model of I want to create a brand that ultimately gets sold. You know, I want I want a liquidity moment yeah. for all my efforts, and that is a very I, we were brought up being taught that way. That's yeah. you know you see examples of of billionaires all over the planet now who have had those moments, um, but there's also another model which is I just want to live my life making beautiful things, yeah. making people happy, and making money, yeah. but never necessarily having that true moment of monopoly money yeah. or buy an island money yeah. and retire, um, which in a lot of ways I feel is how the early European houses mm-hmm. started. It was a family business. It was yeah. handed down. I mean, I know we're in a completely different time where it's rare that a daughter or a son does what a mother or a father did right. necessarily, but in that era, it wasn't necessarily we're going to IPO at some point in time. Right. It was more we. I mean, Gucci's a great example, and yeah. there's a great book about it, which goes into yeah. a lot of a lot of you know how it went sideways from time to time, as right. families do. But um, you know, I, I am seeing young designers sometimes adopt that kind of a, yeah. a, a an approach, which is. I don't, you know, I'm just going to do this because mm-hmm. I'm making some money doing it and, yeah. and I love it and yeah. I can't not do it. Um, and then you look at someone like Stuart Weitzman who who did it because he loved it, but his two daughters did not want to be in the business. So yeah. he, he, you know, he's in his 70s, you know, getting up there and wanted to make sure his business lived on and going through the many owners that's a it's a big challenge yeah. and as you know he's not part of the business anymore yeah. originally he's smart and out there and doing i call it the ted talk circuit and he's mm-hmm. speaking at penn's graduation and they're naming the design school after him so he's in many ways kind of lived his dream but his brand is not his brand anymore and that has to be difficult for somebody because the truth is once your brand is sold, unless, I mean, this is what, back to the European brands, this mm-hmm. is what they do so well. I mean, you look at LVMH, you look at, and you know, Marc Jacobs, and, you know, the brands that they have, have um, you know, absorbed. Sort of incubated and, and, inc- and, 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 and nurtured. Didn't, didn't steal their, their thunder, didn't, mm-hmm. you know, didn't try to turn them into something that they weren't. Yeah. And I think they're better at that than, than we are. Um, but well, that's an interesting. It brings up an interesting point that you and I talk about sometimes in class, which is maybe the new model of the U.S.-based conglomerate, which we've seen with Michael Kors changing the name of his holding company to Capri Holdings and and making several investments, several acquisitions of other brands, right. uh, as well as Coach. Yeah, you know, renamed Tapestry. Right. Um, what do you think of that? as as a business model and i know it would be early i mean yeah. early returns in terms of how those brands are doing but what do you think you think we can do it right here in the u.s i don't know i mean the jury's still out yeah. i was involved 
in you know obviously in the tapestry acquisition mm-hmm. um, um, I have not been in a Stuart Weitzman store since those days um, I've been in Kate Spade stores since it's not the brand that I knew and loved but mm-hmm. look I'm you know I don't I, I don't want to judge because let's again the jury's still out let's see let's let's see how it goes kind of long term yeah. um and um it's it's it it allows a brand to live on i mean and stuart will be the first to tell you that he spoke at cardoza recently you know it allows his name and his company to continue um but it's not his company anymore right and kate spade's business you know she was not involved she neither she nor andy were involved in that business i remember andy spade saying to me on the street several years after they sold that company he said you know i heard a ted talk recently and the speaker said that a brand is like a sending your kid off to college you know you you keep them home and you get them raise them right and then you have to send them to college but he did use the the expression five years you know which is a little different than your kid sending your kid off to college but he said a brand should be you know incubated for five years and then you then you sell it off yeah i think he and kate were are were very smart people and they felt like they did what they did and gosh when you look at that brand at the time it was sold it was perfection sheer perfection in my humble opinion i mean and and so maybe it was time for them to move on of course the the story has a sad ending but um um and well maybe that it's a somber way to close but but i would love your thoughts on how pressure-filled this industry is i mean there's so much glamour associated with it we see designers in the best light usually um how hard is it i mean you've you've known some of these designers as as i do very very well and they put a brave face up but you know apropos of kate and apropos of you know stuart doing doing well but but having you know sort of watching his brand sail off uh, away from him, what uh, what are some of the pressures you've seen, and um, you know what are some of the cautionary uh, points of guidance you could give for a practitioner who has to acknowledge that their client faces those challenges? Sure. Well, I think first, building a brand is hard, hard work, and Stuart worked twenty four hours a day. Kate and Andy Spade worked twenty in their team worked twenty four hours a day. Um, and I think there's a point at which, you know, one gets tired and there's no break. And, and that's true for we lawyers in house too. I say yeah. this to my students all the time when they want to move from, for example, a nice law, a big law, even with the hours or a smaller law firm to in house. You know, I remind them I lost my job four times in my career and not always at the best times in my life when companies get acquired. You know, mm-hmm. that you, you're the merger, the, intensity of the merger and then goodbye yeah um so it's a it's a hard business and when you think about all the brands in my lifetime that don't even exist anymore um and you know you read about a brand that's closing shop and um then maybe comes back you know i think i think the 
the, we haven't really talked about this, but Authentic Brands Group, Global Brands Group, you know, the Centrix, I mean, I think it's called, I mean, there are all, all these marquee brands, sequential, all the iconics, all these holding companies that buy up brands that have been sold, kind of didn't work out, and then, mm-hmm. you know, end up with these with these holding companies, who are, which are basically licensing companies. And let's face it, they're kind of wringing the last bit of consumer goodwill out of those brands because it's not like they're really elevating them they're not saying hey let's acquire band of outsiders and elevate it back to a billion dollar company the model is more there's still some goodwill here yeah let's find juicy couture remember when juicy couture was the hottest brand on earth um let's sew it into cheap underwear and sell it at kohl's and walmart and see how much more we can get out of it yeah and you wonder how the founders feel about that but hopefully they're happy with the money they walked away with and some of them some founders like the woman who started burt's bees you know took Mm -hmm. her money and bought all this land in maine to preserve it i mean people do wonderful things with their money stuart you know, now having a design school named after him and, mm-hmm. you know, being on the speaking tour and talking to, st- he loves talking to students. I mean, people, you know, that gets into what makes us happy. And, yeah. and uh, I think I think the key is, I'll tell you, this is a good sort of closing story. When I went to Warnico after Calvin, after we were acquired by Calvin Klein Jeans, after Cal- Calvin Klein Jeans was acquired by Warnico, I moved to Warnico's offices at 90 Park Avenue, and I was asked to wear a beeper. And I had a young child, and I said, I'm not going to wear a beeper. And this is actually a good story related to your question about women. And I said, I'm not going to wear a beeper. And they said, well, everybody everybody in the C-suite, you have to wear a beeper. I said, we make underwear and jeans. I said, why would you need to beat me in the middle of the night? No. So I refused to wear a beeper at Warnico. And I think that's the key here is that we have to keep our lives in perspective. We have, it's a very, very high pressure business and it's easy to get swallowed into it, swallowed up into it. And I've, and I have friends who have been swallowed up into it and foregone marriage and children and relationships and Travel and you know the as we all know your gravestone your your gravestone is not going to say I wish I'd been to Singapore. Yeah, well, I mean that is a great closing point because it is very much enjoy enjoy the ride, enjoy the process, and being involved in the fashion industry. There is so much to enjoy yes. in the day to day. Barb, that's a wrap. Thanks so much for Thank coming you. in. Thank you. Um, you already have a copy of the Laws of Style, but you'll get another one at the end of today. Um, and any social media handles or other sh- shout outs to our listeners before we close? Um, please check out the FAME website, mm-hmm. um, which has a lot of programs, especially for you young lawyers, CLE programs. Um, watch Doug's podcasts. They're fabulous. And it's a great way to really learn about the business if you are thinking about making that move from, say, a law firm to in-house or even if you're a fashion professional um, looking professionally and look for our book. The Law of the Business of Fashion. Yes. Thanks, Barbara. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to The Laws of Style with Douglas Hand. For more information, go to our website at www.hballp.com. And you can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at, at Hand of the Law. Thank you for tuning in and stay stylish.